Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Data and the Donor. Uh, You could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us for this episode, and we appreciate that. Um, Well, if you're listening to us for the first time, um, what we do here is we take academic studies uh, that focus on fundraising topics and use those results of those studies uh, to frame our conversations on those topics. Uh, My name is Steve Grimes, and I am the Director of Development Analytics and Strategy at Jazz and Lincoln Center here in New York. And I am Michael Paulus. I am a data scientist at the University of Southern California. And um, this week, we are going to be discussing um, the leveraging of donor identities for fundraising and the implications of that strategy for our day-to-day work. Um, With us today to unpack that dynamic, we have Pedro Gavantes and Kristen Anderson. And actually, before I give any introductions to them, we actually were supposed to record this episode last week, but we had technical difficulties. And by te- technical difficulties, um, I read the wrong articles. And <laughs> both Pedro and Kristen have been gracious uh, and patient with us to kind of get back on track. So I want to first thank them for their patience. Um, Kristen, do you mind going ahead and introducing yourself first? No, I'm happy to. Thanks for having me. My name's Kristen Anderson. I'm the Director of Development at the Kabbalah Center International. Great. And what is your general role there, uh, Kristen? So um, I oversee the entire development department. My background is building fundraising and engagement programs for nonprofits from the ground up. So the Kabbalah Center is a 30-year-old nonprofit, and they've never had a development department. So I came in and you know, implemented a database and some policies, procedures, and now we're rocking and rolling. Great. Thanks, Kristen. And uh, Pedro, uh, do you mind giving us a little background yourself and what do you do? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Pedro Gavantes. I'm the Senior Director of Development uh, for the University of Michigan in the tri-state and eastern Pennsylvania area. So I'm a regional uh, fundraiser for Michigan. Great. And, uh, you know, again, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, we have some great articles today and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. All right. So before we jump in to this episode, um, we just want to review um, because we heard from a few listeners during the last episode. So we got some feedback from you, which we really appreciate. So just to recap, the last episode that we did had to do with the impact of a potential donor's gift making decision. Um based on the knowledge of other giving basically around it. So it's a little bit hard to kind of explain in one sentence. Um, but I also mentioned that what we, what we looked at, we looked at two articles. We looked at when the relatively poor prosper, the underdog effect. So that was a controlled experiment about whether donors will choose to give to less successful organizations and why. And majority size and conformity behavior and charitable giving field evidence from a donation-based crowdfunding platform in Japan and that was about how donors will follow along if they know how much a donor is given. So if that makes um, it any more clear. But if, you're, if those aren't interesting to you, then definitely go back and listen to that first episode. But for now, um, like as I mentioned, we did hear from several of you. And we appreciate your feedback and your thoughts. So here is feedback from two listeners in particular. So first, let's listen to the feedback from Jen Vincent, who's a prospect development manager at UNC Wilmington. 
I work in higher education fundraising, and while my focus is more on major gifts, I do collaborate with our annual giving team on projects and some analytics. As you all were discussing the first study with the jars, it made me think about how we structure our one-day giving challenge and our grassroots teal starter campaigns. It made me wonder if perhaps the underdog scenario would play out better in the areas focused more on humanitarian causes, things like education, social work, philosophy, etc. Intuitively, it makes sense. Someone who's going to want to fund social work might think their money would be more useful somewhere else if it looks like the social work bucket is already full. Conversely, it seems that fundraising for business or the hard sciences would likely connect more to a message of success and accountability. What I have seen anecdotally is that those groups are more likely to want to give their money towards measurable and successful campaigns. So they're backing the successful more than the underdog, which made me think that perhaps we need to tweak the messaging around our online fundraising platforms to test those messages. Now, as for the study focused on the follow the leader effect from the donor wall display, this was really interesting as well. I actually forwarded the podcast to our annual giving team due to this segment alone. I thought Sarah had some great points about A-B testing the minimum gift threshold driving the conformity, and that was the thought going through my head as well. The study made me think about the appeals I see that say things like give $20 to feed a dog for a month or $50 to keep the heat on in the kennels, and the effect that those kinds of appeals can have on donation amount. When donors can visualize a commodity associated to their gift, it can walk up the amount they're willing to give. That kind of appeal seems like it would work especially well with the underdog scenario outlined in the first study. We also received comments from Jen Grasso, Prospect Development Analyst at the Trust for Public Land. So let's listen to that one now. Um, And great to be on. Um, I really love the idea of this podcast. I thought it sounded great. Um, And the articles were really interesting. And they they both definitely got me thinking about uh, donor behaviors and uh, also how all fundraisers should really be required to take more psychology courses, including myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But both papers, you know, had me thinking about my own behavior as a donor. Um, And with the first paper in particular in the lab environment, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like I've definitely fallen into each of the two buckets, you know, an underdog versus an impact donor. Mm-hmm. And I think I tend to be more of an impact donor when it's more for a friend's cause, trying to get them to their goal. But I've also given to some underdog organizations who really like pull at my heartstrings in some way. Um, there's some connection there. Right. Uh, so, and I think overall, you know, donors can fall into both categories throughout their lives, depending on various outside factors and charities that cross their path. Uh, so definitely very interesting article. Um, don't think it's really re- realistic to kind of, you know, pigeonhole groups of people into one group or another. You know, I think that would make fundraising a bit too easy if we could if we could do that. Um, right, right. But yeah, I really, you know, I thought it was interesting and uh, I'd love to read these articles um, at some point. And I thought the second paper on conformity and giving was also interesting and, and sort of highlights the type of peer pressure that exists in fundraising. And I thought that Sarah had a really good point about, you know, setting the right amount for a threshold gift, uh, which encourages the donor to give at least at that level. Um, Because I think in a sense, you know, these more transactional donors don't have, you know, we don't have the major gift fundraiser guiding us to give a bigger gift. Uh, So I think crowdfunding platforms um, are really good for these types of donors. And and, and with threshold amount, we'll, you know, guide us and uh, sort of help us give it at a higher level and hopefully turn us into major gift donors down the road. 
Okay, that was really, really great insight. And if anyone else listening would like to add some additional thoughts on today's discussion, then please reach out to us. Um, the email to do so is dataandthedonor at gmail.com. Okay, so on to this week's episode where we are focusing on utilizing the donor's identity as a solicitation strategy. Like our last episode, we will use two studies to unpack this dynamic, and our first study is titled uh, Loss in Translation, a Sociological Study of the Role of Fundraisers in Mediating Gift-Giving in Nonprofit Organizations. It was written in 2017 by Leslie Alborough, and, and I do hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, who was at the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. And this article is more of an, an exploratory study as that it discusses a dynamic that past studies really haven't focused on, unpacks some mechanisms of it, and leaves us as a reader to think about the implications of those mechanisms. So it's the perfect type of article for what we're trying to do here with this podcast, which is to spur a conversation about fundraising. And in Alboro's words, um, what she's really interested in is, quote, an analysis of the social interactions that shape the ways in which giving is facilitated by fundraisers and how long-term giving relationships are constructed and managed. You see, the main assumption the article is making here is that the re- that a relationship-focused approach to fundraising that speaks to who the donor is is really what keeps donors around. If you're listening to this podcast, you already understand this dynamic, um, that as fundraisers, we're able to not just acquire more substantial gifts from donors the more we move away from transactional exchanges, but we are able to keep givers in our fold the more we implement a relational exchange with them. And Allborough is interested in what exactly does this dynamic entail? So she comes to a few conclusions after conducting 30 interviews with frontline and non-frontline nonprofit professionals working in various nonprofit organizations within the United Kingdom. Um, and the crux to these conclusions is that the fundraiser, that is, again, the person who's soliciting the gift, is the key mediator between the organization and the donor. Again, if you're listening to this podcast, you already understand this dynamic. Um, but, you know, we believe Alboro brings up some interesting points that we thought um, it would be interesting to unpack. So first, because the fundraiser is speaking to who the donor is to create a relationship dynamic rather than a transactional one, Arboro finds that the fundraiser is creating a relationship of reciprocity, where the fundraiser manufactures a narrative about the organization that fits to the wants and needs of the donor. And the implication of this here is because we are uh, we, we like to think that the donor is primarily making a connection to the organization, the donor is also primarily building a relationship here with the fundraiser. Again, this is not to say that there isn't a relationship built with the organization, but it is to say that the fundraiser is the medium that builds the relationship through manufactured narratives that the donor can connect to. The implications of this are that the donor is as much connected to the organization as they are to the fundraiser. 
Secondly, Oro finds that their respondent through their respondent interviews um, that the most effective way to connect a donor is to build narratives around their gift being transformational, um, that it is key in helping beneficiaries, that, that they are key in helping beneficiaries, beneficiaries um, and that they have relative control over where and how their gifts are used. Uh, the latter two narratives are usually manufactured through the use of reports that review how beneficiaries are impacted. Um, sometimes meeting those beneficiaries in person are helpful. Um, having events that thank donors and creating or aligning projects to the donor's wishes. This is all the while the donor is consuming a narrative from the fundraiser that what they are doing is important and that the gift is their gift is a sacrifice that should make the donor feel good about themselves. Um, so, you know, Obero actually goes through a bunch of other implications and asks a bunch of questions that we'll unpack here today. Um, but before we do that, we do have another article uh, that pairs well with what's being said here that Mike is uh, going to go through right now. It was published in 2017. It's titled, Both Selfishness and Selflessness Start with the Self. How Wealth Shapes Response to Charitable Appeals published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. So the researchers for this article are Ashley Willens and Elizabeth Dunn from the University of British Columbia, as well as Eugene Caruso from the Booth School of or from the Booth School rather at the University of Chicago. So the question they explore is how the fit between a donor's self-concept or self-identity and an organization organization's messaging will impact giving. Their hypothesis is that appeals that emphasize agency will result in increased giving from wealthier individuals, and those that emphasize community will have the same effect for those that are less wealthy. So three studies were conducted to investigate this idea. The first asked participants to take an online survey, and they are shown either a communal solicitation that says, let's save a life together, or an agentic solicitation that says, you equals lifesaver. Afterwards, they have a choice to click on a donate, donate Today button or a Skip button. So for this first study, they actually don't know whether or not the participant continued on to actually make a gift. They just know that they signaled intent to do so. In study number two, people are approached and asked to take a survey. After, they are given $10. They are then shown the same solicitations and asked if they want to donate. Uh, these two studies use existing appeals. So in the third they make a new, two new versions. So in this case, the graphics are exactly the same between the two appeals. And the only difference is the copy with the key part of the communal appeal stating, sometimes one community needs to come together, join our community. Meanwhile, the agentic one states, sometimes one person needs to come forward and take individual action. So in this study, they again ask participants to take the same survey. And this survey is capturing attributes such as gender, age, ethnicity, and household income, personal net worth, and subjective wealth to check for that correlation between someone's wealth and their likelihood to give as well as giving the, the amount they give. So they are, in this study, in the third study, they are told that they have a chance to win $100. They are then shown one of the two new appeals, and they're asked to indicate how much of their winnings they would give to the organization if they won. So in all studies, all three of these studies, there's a significant correlation between wealth and the likelihood to give, as well as the amount that's given to the agentic appeals um, for those who identify as wealthier, particularly objectively through the income um, portion of that survey. 
So in particular, they found that those indicating that their income was $50,000 or less gave more and gave more often when presented with the communal appeal. And those with incomes of 90000 or more gave more and also more often when presented with the agentic appeal. So this suggests that speaking to a prospect's self-concept can lead to increased giving. So it serves as kind of a proof in a very specific scenario to support the views put forth in the first article. So I feel that the thread connecting these two articles is really about tailoring a path for our donors depending on their identity and how they see their relationship with the organization. So the first article covers this more generally and more broadly, while the second article is a deeper dive at using a sense of agency to appeal to wealthier donors in particular. So now that we've kind of summarized those two articles, I want to get bring our guests back in and get their initial thoughts about both articles and the basic theme of the um, episode. So Kristen, can we start with you and just get your initial thoughts? Sure. So the second article, I'm going to be honest, not not my favorite. Um, even from the beginning, they mentioned that some research supports that the more wealth a person has, the more they give. But then literally in the next sentence, oh, other research suggests the opposite. So I really wasn't sure like where they were going to go with that. Um, but I did find that their take on the differences in wealth being associated with differences in self-concept, really interesting and something that I personally would love to try out in some upcoming appeals that I have. Um, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but I really thought that as I was reading it, and specifically as I reviewed the copy from the two, and they call them ads, so ads, but uh, it's really just good marketing. It's keeping a pulse on your constituent base or constituent bases and crafting a message for the highest return of investment. So, you know, I oversee our communications at the Kabbalah Center and it's smart fundraising and I've definitely done it before. So there's obviously more to the article, but that was my initial takeaway. Right, thanks, Kristen. Pedro, can we get your first um, initial thoughts? Sure. So uh, I'll go ahead and start with the second article first, too. Um, uh, I appreciated the fact that uh, the general idea of wanting to uh, understand identities of donors and trying to especially get at this, this understanding of the self, I think it's critically important. However, I also I agree with Kristen. It, it fell short for me really for three reasons. Um, number one, this concept of the self, I think, is affected by how the wealth is made. And the article really didn't uh, touch that point at all. Uh, how how someone achieves that status of quote unquote wealth, I think, has a great deal of impact in how they understand themselves. And the article really didn't touch into that. And then, uh, secondly, I think its conclusions are a little bit too broad given its methodology. Um, the article really didn't get into the what should be, I think, a, a dynamic and vital and integral relationship that the donor has both with the organization and with a fundraiser. And this was a little too sterile, I think, um, a study to draw such broad conclusions from. And then third, uh, the uh, the idea of, of a kind of objectivity of wealth, of what constitutes wealth, um, I understand the principle and all of us all of us will will certainly uh, ascribe to idea general ideas uh, and agree upon general ideas of what what constitutes wealth. However, uh, there is an important sense that we need to understand that wealth, the idea of wealth, is a a construct that is embraced by by the donor, 
by the organization, by the fundraiser, and is incredibly subjective, which of course then affects our understanding of the self. Um, so I don't think that the that the article went into that at all. Um, and as far as the 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 first article, I think that does a great job at uh, laying out for us this double edged sword of our role as fundraisers as being both uh, uh, storytellers throughout the giving process, but then also having us recognize that the storytelling we do has a potential uh, downside to it and a potential negative consequence that we also need to recognize and try to address. All right. You know, so I, um, I was relatively enamored with the concept and the idea that you can, you know, going back to, to the methodological problems in the second article, um, and essentially putting everyone in a bucket of, individuals who make under X amount and then another bucket of individuals who make over X amount. And then saying that because of that, right, even if you've controlled for everything and and this is not to besmirch the authors here, they definitely control for some things, but then to go ahead and say that, um, you know, if you're making over a certain amount, we can start to lead some sort of conclusion that you're going to be more apt to the idea of uh, uh, of a solicitation that speaks to your agency and it speaks to your ability to do something and it, it, it puts you first. Um, you know, and I like the point that you make here, Mike, that, you know, how the wealth is made, how you're making your money um, is going to be tied to your identity, right? You know, if you are sort of a pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of person, yeah, you know, I could probably see, you know, that coming out in in in, in, in the study that, you know, you are a person who feels like, you know, do it on your own, you know, um, grit and grind and get it done. Right. Yeah. You're likely to probably lean towards the more agentic side. But if you're a person who, you know, um, like, let's say you're a rich socialist. Right. You know, and you are a person who feels that, um, you know, yeah, people can have wealth. But at the same time, they, um, you know, it should also be about community. That wealth should be shared. It isn't about the bootstraps. It is about you know, all the opportunities that I've had to get to where I am. And that's why I'm wealthy, right? You know, I can also see a person going, yeah, well, you know, I'm more apt to to pay attention to the communal um, sort of um, um, appeal. Um, So, yeah, you know, I I thought that the, the, the methodology of the article was problematic, um, but I did appreciate the the concept that the authors are trying to bring out here that um yes once you once you are kind of in a bucket it, it is likely that you're going to uh, show a particular identity about yourself or try to attach yourself with that identity internalize that identity <clears throat> and that fundraisers to be um uh, effective in in their work have to be able to speak to that identity because as the first article shows you have to go ahead and put yourself in a position to um, attach the cause 
to the way the donor sees themselves. And if you're unable to do so, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to, you're going to just kind of keep this, this transactional sort of way of dealing with their, their donation rather than speaking to the donor. And, and Kristen, I know you uh, particularly love the first, the first article, and that's part of one of the reasons why you liked it. Do you like this, this idea that, you know, um, uh, it, it, it's clear that, you know, when you're trying to bring donors in, you kind of have to speak to their identity, but like, have you ever thought about it in this way or have you kind of, you know, conceptualized it in, in that way as you're speaking to donors? Well, I, I wanted to add that, you know, with the second article, typically, you know, that's not how you would approach your major donors. You're not going to hand them a card that says like, you can do it. Um, but if you're looking at it from a mass communication standpoint, the strategy really works. But from a physical major gift office, like donor relationship position, I think when you have larger donors, the major gift officer is the one that's speaking on messaging and and listening and, and acting on feedback, which makes them successful and obviously is relationship building. But yeah, if I know that one of my donors likes weekly updates on a certain project, like that's what I'll do. And I'll always add in like, thank you. And like a way I just cater to the person that's, I think just natural when you're fundraising, whether it's one-on-one with a major donor or even individual. I mean, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying, like, even if it's one-on-one or if it's, like, with a, a group of people, you cater to your audience. And so I, I wanted to speak to that in the sense that, like, well, then you have to find yourself trying to have conversations with your donors, specifically to their identities, I imagine, each time, kind of trying to figure out ways to, you know, what's the mission that we have here and how do I apply it to how I think this donor is now going to go ahead and, um, you know, how this donor sees themselves and try to connect something. I, I imagine you're doing that a lot. Yeah, but I don't think it's as calculated as we're, we're speaking about it right now. You know, I just, it's like when you're with a friend, one friend might always talk about their family and another one might always want to talk about their career. And when you're with them, those are the conversations that you just naturally gravitate towards. So I think for me, when I'm meeting with someone, I listen and I, you know, speak on what they're saying. And that's what I use when I'm trying to get them to support something. And I always ask for them to support something that I know that they've given me clues in those conversations that they would really identify with. Mike, what were your thoughts when, um, with the idea that, you know, one of the things that I um, was really bothered by, and Pedro, I know you and I have had conversations about this, but like, if there's anything about like these sorts of articles, they they allow you to kind of take the, I think when we're in it, and it's a day-to-day sort of thing, you, you can't see the forest or the trees. And um, sometimes, you know, reading these articles, you're able to kind of put like what we do out there as the object to look at. And um, with the first article, you know, I was a bit, um, you know, we I had a bit of a crisis of consciousness because I felt as if 
you know, so like I told you guys earlier, you know, I, I kind of stay within fundraising because I feel as if I have a part in having some sort of social impact. And I felt as if the article is, is, is leading to this conclusion that, you know, what you're doing when you're talking to donors, you're making it about the donor. And you kind of have to if you want to have a relational sort of um, dynamic with them, right? You know, a transactional sort of uh, dynamic will will lead to you just kind of not really speaking to their identities. But if you're speaking to, to their identities, if you're speaking to how they see themselves and how they see themselves with the cause or with the mission, you, you, you might be leading yourself down a road where it comes about, it, it's about the donor and not necessarily about the cause. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I and it, it, any of you have any thoughts towards that? I mean, I, I, I'm still kind of struggling with it myself. Um, but you know, this is something that, that, that was just, that was really out there for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll pick up maybe a slightly opposing view and I'll bring, um, we'll bring Pedro back in because I know he may be more in line with you, but I think I'm, I'm more on kind of what Kristen said earlier. I almost feel it's just smart marketing in a way, you know what I mean? So I have less of a crisis of consciousness about it um, just because, so there's a way I would think about it is this, if we take the article's findings at face value, if we're going to just, you know, I mean, we all are kind of questioning them a little bit, but for the sake of argument, if, um, if we accept that this is an effective way or we, we find anyway, an effective way to um, communicate our message to a particular segment within our, with our, within our constituent population, I think it just makes absolute sense to message them in the way that's going to make that's going to be lead to like the, the best results, right? That's going to, that's going to impact them or is going to resonate with them is the word I'm looking for. And why it was escaping me. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, so for me, yeah, it's just like, it's just good, like smart marketing, but I know that you both were kind of talking about this kind of crisis of consciousness. So bring Pedro back in to kind of uh, maybe bring in some more thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, my, my problem I, my, one of my problems, I think, with the second article was it, it started to go down the road of what happens when we start to uh, assign char- certain characteristics to certain generations, for example. Boomers are likely to be this and this and this and this. Uh, Gen Xers are likely to have these characteristics. Uh, millennials all operate like this. When the fact of the matter, those things can be helpful. They can be helpful in in kind of painting with a broom and getting general understandings. But when it comes to down to dealing with individual people, um, and I think Kristen, this is what you were getting at too, that individual people aren't those categories. They don't. They're not in those categories. Um, they are individuals, and we need to listen to uh, we need to listen to them as such, and. I, you know, I think that this this idea of trying to make wealth a determiner in how they will or will not respond, I think, becomes way problematic. Um, but I mean, I think that's just a that that's just that's just my thought on it. I think, as far as this crisis of conscience that uh, uh, that you were talking about, uh, Steve, um, this the article, the the second article. Or the first article raised this. This it ends with this question. Uh, it says the key question is thus: Are fundraisers agents for change, or do they, in effect, act as agents for the production of social distance between those who give and those who receive charitable gifts? And I think that's 
that is the question. Uh, we, we have bought into an idea that as fundraisers, we are part of um, high impact organizations that are trying to do good in this world. And the, the disturbing question comes, uh, are we inadvertently uh, perpetuating and, and furthering a problem of the social distance between the giver and the beneficiary uh, by the way we approach our business? I don't think it's necessarily the case, but I think it is. It is a a problem, um, and and lots of lots of current books are being you know, being written now highlighting this issue. You know, I mean, I, and I absolutely agree with you. I I I, I think it's, it's it's problematic. But let's say we want to take um, a more practical you know, toned down sort of way of looking at this, right? I think it it, it, it creates a certain level of haves and have nots um, within our field, right? Not every organization is going to be a Harvard. Not every organization is going to be the Met Opera, right? Where they have all the resources that's necessary, right? To have, you know, qualified um, uh, uh uh, enough gift officers, right, that have the bandwidth too, right, that are able to sit down and really dig into what that donor really wants and, and what they're looking for to have that relational sort of dynamic, right? You know, um, it, you know, it, 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 when I was reading the article, you know, it kind of stood out to me, well, I, you know, that's part of the reason why these schools and these organizations, they get these large gifts because there's so much work that goes into you know, um, cultivating, bringing people in and, and getting them down to, to, to what you're trying to do here that, you know, after a certain time, people are like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll take everything I have. Right. And and then really at the end of the day, right, you know, the, the you know, the local animal shelter down the block just doesn't have the resources to do that. Right. Um, it also got me thinking a little bit. And Chris and I know you and I talked about this a little bit uh, uh, where the donor sometimes will not, it, it, they're not essentially loyal to the organization. They're almost loyal to the fundraiser, right? Because you've created these relationships with these individuals where after a while they'll, they'll just, they'll, they'll go wherever you go. Uh, you know, in a sense that, you know, uh, you can call on, if you go, if you leave an organization and you go somewhere else, you can call on them to go like, Hey, you know, I, I think you'd be great to, to give to that cause, uh, you, know, you know, I know you're not that this organization isn't on your radar, but I really think it's something you should listen to. Have you ever been in that situation where, you know, you've left one organization, gone to another organization, and because you've kind of created a Rolodex of, of um, really close donors where you can just call on them and be like, look, hey, you know, um, I, I think I have a great cause for you to get down with. I haven't had it like that, I think I'm in a unique position where a lot of people typically stay in like the same field. So like higher ed or healthcare, but I've kind of jumped around all over because I am very niche where I'm starting a program from scratch. But I do keep in touch with a lot of donors from when I worked in children's cancer, when I worked in higher ed. And I will say that some people did leave not necessarily when I left, but a lot of the places have were going through um, their own transition and people did leave and I still keep in touch with those people. 
if I were at an organization that I thought that they would identify with and be supportive of, would I, you know, reach out to them and share the mission and what I'm doing? Absolutely. I think that that that's just networking and I don't know, being a good friend. <laughs> uh, Pedro, have you, have you seen that? Have... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think that's something we have to be very, um, very cognizant of because our field, especially as frontline fundraisers, the, uh, the lifespan of a fundraiser in most organizations is somewhere, uh, somewhere between 18 and 20 months. And when you have that level of turnover, uh, if the fundraiser has gone about their business in a manner that bills the donor more to themselves than to the mission of the organization that the fundraiser is representing, that's going to inherently create long-term problems for organizations across the board because you have the deck is getting shuffled every 18 to 24 months, and that's going to create an enormous amount of instability. I don't know how much people are actually like take like I don't know when I first started in fundraising a lot of people were looking for fundraisers who had like a rolodex of donors like I don't really think that that's realistic today I think people are really identify with the mission and at the end of the day if you have developed a genuine relationship that's one thing but I strongly believe in the whole saying of like that a donors should be giving to the organization and not the person that's soliciting them. And yeah, I, I definitely try to adhere to that, but there's just been people that I've met along the way who have been really great and we've been going through similar things. So I think that's separate. That's just meeting like a a colleague. Mike, you had some sort of uh, issues, not issues, but thoughts on the operational aspects of some of these articles. Yeah. So, um, on the operational side, what one of the things I was really thinking about was just how we create this system of um, of really customizing things to donors. So in this case, it seems really possible, right? With the with the specific with article number two, you basically create like two types of appeals, right, and for different segments. So that's simple enough, and maybe some of us are already doing that. But I also started thinking about how this connects um, to the first article, and that there's multiple dimensions, right? And so I started thinking, well, even with wealth, I think, well, there's not just the appeal, but there's the stewardship activities. So you might um, take like lower level donors and give and and provide them or invite them to certain stewardship activities that um, emphasize volunteering or something like that, really being part of the community. And with with your larger donors, you might be inviting them to a tour where you can, you can inform them that they made this all possible or some dinner type event where you're sort of the speaker who looks at them and says, you're the reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. So some of this, again, is probably already happening and maybe seems kind of obvious, but I guess what I, what I think about is not so particularly that this article is looking at like, okay, we can look at wealth or we can look at this one dimension and we can segment based on that. But the fact that like people's self-concept and self-identity is so multifaceted and multidimensional and can we, to what extent can we actually create these kind of customized experiences for donors on a multitude of dimensions. Like how can we do that effectively? So that gets into the idea of how operations at Frontline can work together. Like what can we be pulling in and kind of codifying or whatever classifying on the back end and feeding forward back to our frontline fundraisers so that they're going in and they know that a certain donor is on a certain track. So maybe a, 
they can't be every dimension. Maybe there's a, a, a set of dimensions and that just, you know, almost like when you take a personality test and there's like the four quadrants or whatever, you know, like we're kind of just putting people on a certain road. And I don't know, I don't know. I guess my point is like, can we get that information? Can we start to do that? And if we did, if we did, if we have a frontline fundraiser here, would that be helpful to you? Is that like, would that be something that would be beneficial to you as you kind of enter into a relationship or kind of try to find new prospects or things? So that's where my mind went when I was looking at articles. Yeah, I think it would be helpful. I, I think that it's, it's probably there's a there's a a a disconnect and um, not as much of a, a clear communication track I think between operations and frontline fundraisers uh, such that operations kind of is intimately involved with uh, what I'm doing on a on a day to day basis and who I'm seeing and and really I don't know that we put we as frontline fundraisers don't really. Uh, don't really put that idea and live that idea with our operations colleagues of we are together storytellers. And that's a good thing. We, we, you know, as beings, we, we think in terms of story and really for frontline fundraisers to invite their operational colleagues into that kind of understanding of themselves and their work that we've, we as frontline fundraisers, you as operations are working together to craft a story um, and that is both going to help us uh, reach a donor, but also help uh, help that donor understand the impact of their giving, and and that 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 story, the effectiveness of that story, needs us both uh, to be working in tandem together uh, and listening and going off of one another. And I'm not sure that 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 kind of symbiotic uh, relationship is invested in as much as it needs to be. But so is there, you know, I imagine that higher ed institutions have an easier time of possibly creating like this complete chain where, you know, like if we're talking about speaking to the donor's identity, right, and being a part of their identity as an organization, that we're part and parcel to who this person is, that we don't even have to play up um, and manufacture a narrative. I imagine higher eds are in a better position to do that, right? You know, so if you think of the idea of school spirit, right, and um, schools that have strong school spirit where people are absolutely happy to be there, you know, it becomes part of who they are. And, um, you know, that school spirit is is created through, you know, sporting events, um, other on-campus events, right? And the student leaves the, the, the university essentially realizing, you know, who I am is, or this college is part of who I am. So when now you get an appeal to say like, hey, give back because, you know, who you are today, you know, happened with this college, right? Like you're, 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 you're in a, you're in just a better position, right? To speak to that person's identity. I don't know how well that then is, that plays out for other organizations. I mean, maybe, I think Kristen, I think maybe you are actually, in um, a good position to kind of take advantage of that because there's a, you know, your organization uh, is, is tied to the culture uh, of, of the people who actually go there also. Yeah. Um, you know, when people come and they have a spiritual transformation or they're trying to um, strengthen their spirituality, I think it's something that we can definitely speak on. We actually did recently send an appeal that said like how, how did you come to the center? Um, 
And basically, when you opened it, it talked about like all of the different ways that the center may have impacted your life, and that why not try and pay it forward and bring someone new into the organization and and to take our first level class. So we're still waiting for the results on that. That's great. You know, and one of the things I actually was thinking of with this idea of speaking to identity and Pedro, you bring this up in, in a sense that like, well, you know, we have to be careful not to put people in these like discrete buckets, right. And, and realize that they, they come from all walks of life and it's because one person has, you know, one way of doing things doesn't mean that they're, they actually are another thing. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about was, well, you know, what happens on a practical sense when you're hiring um, frontline fundraisers to go out there and speak about the mission of the organization? And you want you want fundraisers who speak, and it sounds horrible, but like the language of your donors, right? Like a person who donates to the ACLU is going to be a very particular type of person. The person who, who donates to the Met is going to be a very particular type of person. The person who donates to, to jazz um, is, is going to be a very particular type of person. You want your donors to be able to uh, to have conversations with, I'm sorry, your gift officers to have conversations with your donors in the way that you would expect a supporter of your organization to be. But then there's some danger in that, right? Because then you are unable to kind of expand how your mission and your cause can be seen as differently, right? Because now you 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 have pigeonholed your donors into this one group, right? And you're unable to speak the language of other types of donors who, you know, in the long term and the short term may not necessarily be there with you, but you know, as you cultivate them in the long term, they 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 can come into your fold. Um, so you know, like, have you guys like thought about this? I mean, am I am I thinking too deep, deeply about about, about that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's, you know, in education, like with other nonprofits, we sort of have a built-in audience. And uh, our built-in audience are alums and parents of current or past students, um, some friends of the, of the college or university, but it's mostly alums. And so we have a built-in audience. And, uh, and yeah, you definitely want a fundraiser that understands that. Um, you know, one of the questions I get, and I, I've served at Villanova University and, and now at, at University of Michigan, and... Um, one of one of the immediate questions I get when I first meet donors uh, or prospective donors is, "Did you attend? Are you an alum?" And um, you know, I can say yes or I can say no, and it's it, it is very it's it's a very different kind of feel. Um, and and I think it's actually at first they kind of go, well, "Why would you fundraise if you're not a, an alum? Why would you fundraise for this institution if you're not an alum of this institution?" And uh, I think that that's uh, once we get past that, it actually is a help because the donor now understands I'm all about I'm I'm about them I'm about them first I'm here to represent and help them achieve their objectives, and when I articulate that to them, it actually carries a lot more weight. I think uh, that I'm not an alum of uh, of Michigan. I'm 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 about I'm about you right now. Uh, and and seeing what you want to see done, get done. Yeah, I actually, um, I was an alum at my last um, organization, my alma mater. 
And now I had no affiliation with the Kabbalah Center. And I will say that I was skeptical going in, but I was really up for the challenge of kind to kind of building out this program in in an international organization. And I've spent the last, I guess it's been like 15 months behind the scenes. And as I've kind of learned and built things out and people have seen the improvements as I go out now and meet with people, I think they're happy that I came in and that I don't really know too much about what they're going through as like a student and I'm learning and they're happy to see that. They want to see me be curious, but at the same time, they want they wanted a professional in this role. And so I think it goes both ways. You really just have to be honest and transparent with the people that you're talking with about what your intentions are. My intentions right now are to build out a program and see the center succeed as an organization and see more people be affected by our mission. All right. There's so much more. I feel like we could get into so much more, but I think we're getting at about time for this episode. So we're going to start to wrap here. Um, let me thank you all, our listeners, for joining us again for another episode. And uh, let me thank Pedro and Kristen for joining us. So thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. So Steve and I will get these articles up and available to you all, the listeners, um, as soon as possible. And we'll let you know how we can do that. Um, but we will do it. And, um, and I don't have the specifics on how we're going to do it, but you know, we'll get you we'll through one of the out. channels. We know how to find you. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, if you want to get in touch with us, please do so. Um, as people did last time, it's really helpful for us to get your feedback, to know what direction, to just to know what's working, what's not working and what else you want us to cover and everything like that. We do listen, we take it into consideration and we're going to use it moving forward. So please do reach out on um, the email for us is data and the donor at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.